If the middle-aged Nelson Mandela understood his childhood via a single moment, a moment he believed shaped what was to come, it was the death of his father. He was just 11 or 12 years old, and he was there, in the room. He was watching. It was by chance, really, for Gadla Henry Mpakanyiswa Mandela was a polygamist married to four women, and each had a home many miles from the next. Gadla circulated among them, spending a week with one wife, then a week with another. It so happened that on the evening of his death, he was visiting Nelson's mother, his third wife, and thus died in Nelson's home. He had been ill a long time, probably with tuberculosis. That evening, on a mat on the floor, Gadla lay down and coughed without pause. Two women were with him, Nelson's mother and his father's fourth wife. The dying patriarch called for his tobacco and his pipe. But Nelson's mother demurred, permitting a man in his condition to smoke did not seem right to her. Gadla did not like this at all. Through the course of the evening, he fought her stubbornly, repeating his demand over and over again. Finally, she relented. She filled his pipe with fresh tobacco, lit it, and gave it to him. He lay there smoking for some time, his coughing stilled, until the pipe fell from his mouth, and he was dead. In the days that followed, Nelson's world fell apart. Not long after the funeral, his mother took him on a journey by foot westward from Kunu, the village that had been his home since he was an infant. She delivered him to a place he'd never visited and to a household whose members he had never met. He would not live with his mother again, not until he himself was married and invited her to move in with his young family. And he would not have a home in Kunu until he built a house there, more than 60 years later. During his long years in prison, he thought a great deal of that journey with his mother. He recalled looking back over his shoulder at Kunu and feeling not so much bereft as cut adrift. And as he grew older, his memory of that day changed, making him frailer and more vulnerable. By the time he was in his late 60s, he remembered being nine instead of the 11 or 12-year-old boy he was. It is hard to pinpoint when Nelson began to misremember his age when his father died. When he secretly wrote his autobiography in prison in 1976, he still recalled that he had been 12. But in an authorized biography, Higher Than Hope by Fatima Mir, published in 1988, his father's death is brought forward by three years. And in 1992, he told the ghostwriter of his autobiography, Long Walk to Freedom, that he was nine when his father died. He looked back on Kunu with the most extraordinary nostalgia. The river swollen, the fields verdant, the bees forever making the honey a boy might steal. He was born Rolihlahla Mandela, the name Nelson given to him by his teacher on his first day of school, on July 18, 1918, in the Transkei on South Africa's southeastern seaboard. It is a world of luminous green. Shelves of bright grassland lie scattered as far as the eye can see, as if the pieces of the earth were set one atop the other instead of side by side. Most people in the Transkei at this time lived in huts made from mud and grass. Women and children wore ochre blankets rather than trousers and skirts. 
very few people could read or write. Those who were literate and numerate were usually Christians. They wore Western-style clothes. They attended church on Sundays. They were known as amakoboka, people who have turned. They were one of many signs of roiling change. In Nelson's grandparents' time, the region that became known as the Eastern Cape was the site of 12 independent Xhosa-speaking kingdoms. Over the course of the 19th century, the British conquered each in turn. Some of these conquests were achieved without a shot fired. Some handed over their sovereignty at meetings in which decorum was observed. But in other instances, conquest was devastating, involving mass hunger and landlessness across large parts of the countryside. The aristocracies that once ruled these kingdoms were humbled, but they were not crushed. Famously, Britain governed its black subjects not directly through British law, but indirectly through the subdued kingdoms. The power of black aristocrats clipped by the white magistrates who watched over their work. The relations that evolved between these black aristocrats and their white conquerors became ever so opaque, a ceaseless relay of collaboration and deceit. Proud black patriarchs on one side, on the other, proud whites. And then there was the church. The seaboard on which Nelson was born was the site of the densest Christian proselytizing activity in Africa. And the missionaries were enormously influential. For one, they administered the only schools in the Transkei. Aristocrats who wanted their children to read and write, and most did want their children to read and write, for these were the tools of the future, surrendered their progeny to Christian belief. And the missions, too, were the only sites of Western medicine and of modernizing technologies in agriculture. The priests were also in many instances diplomatic conduits to white power at home and to European influence abroad. And so the relationships that evolved between black aristocrats and white clergy were of great consequence. Many clergymen lived much of their adult lives in the conquered kingdoms. In some instances, their allegiances to the black aristocracies grew deep. Some found the doctrine in which they had been schooled harshly tested by their exposure to black people's realms and returned home quite different men. The world of Nelson's childhood was changing in more ways still. When his father was born, most men in villages like Kunu lived their lives in the Transkei. By the time Nelson's father died, tens of thousands of the Transkei's men were spending their working lives more than 800 miles away, deep underground, in the Witwatersrand's gold mines. It was the most rapid and dramatic change that followed conquest. This propulsion of rural men into an industry that had begun to produce much of the world's gold. When Nelson himself left for Johannesburg as a young man, his first stop was a gold mine. Nelson was born into the aristocracy of one of the twelve conquered kingdoms, the Tembu. His father was both a royal and, for some years, a senior official. In 1916, two years before Nelson's birth, he was appointed jointly by the white magistrate and the Tembu paramount chief as headman of the village of Mveso, not far from Kunu, his primary responsibility to administer the allocation of land. But to say that Nelson was an aristocrat is to risk the gravest misunderstanding. 
The Xhosa-speaking aristocracies were large and sprawling, and many in their ranks died in poverty. Being an aristocrat was no guarantee of either prosperity or fame. When Nelson's mother walked him westward shortly after his father's death, she was taking him to the very center of Tembu influence, the great place of the regent to the Tembu throne. Jongintaba Dalinjebo, in the village of Mkregezweni. But Kunu itself, the only place Nelson had known until then, was not resplendent at all. Nelson, his mother, and his three sisters lived in a homestead consisting of three beehive-shaped huts built from mud, cow dung, and grass. There was no furniture in the room where his father died, only mats, and there was certainly no electricity. Nelson's mother worked the fields around the homestead, and the family ate what she grew, maize, pumpkins, sorghum. None of the children of Nelson's father's first two wives went to school. Each lived and died illiterate. Nelson's mother took him to Jongintaba's great place after his father died because the regent had agreed to take Nelson as his ward. Had he not done so, the Nelson Mandela the world came to know would not have existed. He would have had neither the schooling nor the networks of influence to make of himself a person whose name endures. When he first glimpsed the great place on the last stretch of his journey with his mother, he was awestruck. We came across a village, he later recalled, at the center of which was a large and gracious home that so far exceeded anything that I had ever seen that all I could do was marvel at it. There were orchards of peach and apple trees, a vegetable garden and flower beds. There was rich grassland on which large herds of cattle and sheep grazed. As he stood there, wide-eyed, a large car approached, and everyone sitting around the house promptly rose, doffed their hats, and shouted a salute. Out of the motor car, Nelson remembered, stepped a short, thick-set man wearing a smart suit. I could see that he had the confidence and the bearing of a man who was used to the exercise of authority. It was the regent, Jongintaba, Nelson's new guardian. Several witnesses recall the depth of Nelson's distress during the first months in his new home. The regent's older daughter described him as a shy and lonely boy, wandering around by himself in the new outfit her father had bought him. And three of his playmates remembered that Nelson often wet his sleeping mat at night and surreptitiously swapped it with the mat of another. An innocent child woke in the morning to be accused of Nelson's crime. Twelve years old is a late age to be wetting one's bed. His private world was insecure and secretive and full of cunning. And why would it not be? Just a boy, he'd been separated from his home, his village, and his mother, his father recently dead. And the people and the things around him were not only unfamiliar, but grandiose. He was out of his depth. Years later, he described his feelings after settling at the great place as those of an orphan. Shortly after he arrived, Nelson was dressed in clothes befitting his new station, crisp khaki shorts and a khaki shirt, according to one witness. Imagining what he looked like in his unaccustomed attire, he saw more an ornament than a boy. 
a polished piece of bronze. When Nelson first glimpsed the regent, he was struck at once by the comportment of a man accustomed to power. But it was not just the regent himself. All the people around him at the great place seemed quite otherworldly in their glamour and their grace. There was, for instance, the regent's son and heir, Justice Dalinjebo, who was four years older than Nelson. On the day Nelson met him, he was wearing a fine suit and a shirt that was tailored to fit him. And the body underneath the shirt, Nelson could not but notice, was fit and strong. And beyond the clothes and the body was something else. Something he hadn't the language to describe, but that is perhaps best named as charisma. Justice, Nelson was to write, became my first hero after my father. Tall, handsome and muscular, he was a fine sportsman and a natural performer who enchanted audiences with his singing and transfixed them with his ballroom dancing. He had a bevy of female admirers, but also a coterie of critics who considered him a dandy and a playboy. It is important to mark this image, a shy and timid boy taking in an idol. Throughout his childhood and youth, Nelson painted the most overblown portraits of the men he admired. They were not just fit, they were well-built and tall. They were not just seductive, they positively trailed admirers. They were not just eloquent, their speeches dazzled. He was an audience to a pantheon of heroes. Years later, when he himself was the one with charisma and broad shoulders and an audience, he understood himself as an imposter summoning the idols in his head.